Welcome to the Historias podcast. I'm Foster Chamberlain. In 1901, news that two women had married in the region of Galicia in northwestern Spain made national headlines and still surprises us today. How did this, quote, marriage without a man, as it was known, occur? And what was the reaction to it in the regional and national press? Joyce Tolliver, director of the program in translation and interpreting studies at the University of Illinois Champaign, and Sean McDaniel, a professor of Spanish at Indiana University of Pennsylvania, join me to discuss this unusual case. This episode accompanies their article on the subject in the latest issue of the Bulletin for Spanish and Portuguese Historical Studies. So Joyce and Sean, welcome to the program. Thank you, it's a pleasure. Thank you, Foster. All right, so let's start out with the story of these two individuals. Elisa also went by Mario and Marcela. Who were they and how were they able to marry? So these were two school teachers, Marcela Gracias Iveas and Elisa Sanchez Loriga, who met each other as students in the normal school in rural Galicia. They lived together for several years before the 1901 wedding. That was not uncommon at the time, by the way, for female school teachers to live together. But apparently they, they had a relationship. And after several years, Elisa presented herself to the parish priest in La Coruña as Mario. So Elisa went presenting as a male named Mario and told Father Cortiela that he wanted to marry his girlfriend. His girlfriend was pregnant. He wanted to raise the children as Catholics and so um, wanted to, to marry her. But there was one little problem. Mario had been raised Protestant and therefore did not know catechism. And now was the time. So Father Cortiela was delighted to put the situation right. The only thing was that Mario had to learn the catechism in order to be baptized, in order to be married in the church, which Mario did in a very quick amount of time. I think the newspaper account said it was like a couple of weeks. And Father Cortiela baptized Mario Sanchez Loriga. With the baptismal uh, certificate, then Mario was able to get the, uh, the wedding registered in the, uh, in the town hall so that the wedding was blessed by the church and was legally sanctioned. Now, uh, I noticed that when you were referring to Mario, Elisa, you, you started out um, saying Elisa and then Mario, so use both the male and female names. Do we know anything about what his or her gender identity was? You know, one of the interesting things about this case is that we have no firsthand accounts at all from either of the two principles involved in the, in the marriage. So when we use this hyphenated name, or actually we use a, a slash, really we're reflecting the usage that's seen in some of the press coverage. Many of the reporters would call this person Mario-Elisa or Elisa-Mario. And we're also, I think, more accurately representing the double presentation of this individual during the time of the event. So, I mean, from my point of view, given all of the press accounts of, of, of Mario Elisa's self-presentation, 
of course, today we would say transgender. Mm -hmm. This is a transgender case. But we do not want to make any particular claims about this individual's gender identity. Uh, we don't have those records. And also, more importantly, we want to be sure that we're careful not to impose our current terminology and framework on this issue of gender identity. So, you know, today we, we emphasize an individual's right to determine their own gender identity. But for the reading public of 1901, that was really not the focus of interest in this story. What they found much more interesting were the details of how that was done, how Elisa managed to legally become Mario. So uh, the fact that the public focused on the how of the case rather than the what of the case, we find as scholars really fascinating because it shows that they were totally engaged with what it meant to be classified as a male or, or as a female. Um, and Sean, maybe you wanna jump in and, and add to that. If you look at the initial press coverage when they first reveal it, because what happens is the, the now married couple return to the village in which they lived. Mario continued to dress as Mario and immediately the village knows exactly what's happened and they're forced to flee. And it becomes at a moment, a scandal. So a local newspaper, Voz de Galicia, Voice of Galicia has a, a, a brief front page article that attempts to describe this particular case. And they frame it as a story of family dysfunction. Um, about the, the, the dangers of uncareful parenting and dangerous friends. And their coverage um, presumes a kind of public response that sees this particular act in a particular way. And what's fascinating is that on the second day's coverage, the editors have to begin with, much to our surprise, the readers are asking very detailed questions about all of the details as to how this was done. And it was not women who were the least interested in this case. So here we are in rural Galicia in 1901, in which the, the, a female readership principally, although in fact it was the old leadership, was asking details about this case which means that the paper's initial presentation, its initial representation of this case was essentially rejected by um, the readership. And they then begin to enter into further depictions of, well, they're, they're trying to marshal the sources of authority that they might have to be able to discuss this case, referring to medicine, referring to law, and referring to church doctrine. Mm -hmm. But the fact that at the first scratch of this interest, a, a, massive, inter, uh, the, uh, a massive public response uh, occurs, and it's soon followed by this case occurs in rural Galicia, but very soon receives national level coverage. And that national level coverage is following the sorts of questioning that occurs in, in Galicia. You know, what was it that um, drew you two to study this case in particular, I understand that this is part of a larger research project that you're conducting. So how does this story fit into it? 
my area of expertise is early modern literature. Joyce's area of expertise is in 19th and 20th century literature, although we are both, as a function of our training, relatively well read in sort of the breadth of it. And at a conference, we had an experience in which our interest began to gel because we were both interested in the presence of passing or the means by which literary texts work on questions of subjectivity. And as a result, we've been engaged, uh, engaged in a multi-year study, which continues to this day. It's basically a diachronic study of the representations of passing in Spanish literature, in which we are exploring the way that um, through representations of passing, questions about the nature and limitations of a whole series of identity categories in Spanish society, be it race, sexuality, gender, uh, religion, purported noble status. And what we find fascinating is that the way that this particular case represents the past can be found in many ways, uh, both forward in history and back, in similar ways to represent, and not just in gender, but on these other categories. So we are proposing that there's a particular mechanism in the representation of the past that allows us to explore the, the nature of the, de the debate. What's the status of the category at a particular moment? Um, I'll just add that we are building on a lot of theory about passing. And um, um, almost all of that theory comes out of a US context based in, in the way that the terms used, of course, in post-Reconstruction US for, for race passing. And um, there's a lot of work that's been done. It's great. Most of it focuses on what we call the ontology of the past. That is the focus on the individual case and on sort of an, an inquiry about the individual's real identity. We think that's very interesting, but at, we are people who are trained to analyze representations. So that's where we go when we think about passing. And as Sean said, in Spain, of course, there are cases of passing. Uh, it goes far beyond the question of, of race passing in the United States. There are cases in which an individual rejects the identity category assigned to them at birth. And they assume a different identity category, usually one that has more rights and privileges and, um, and that escapes the, uh, some of the, the onerous uh, consequences of remaining in their own category. So this is why you see gender passing, race passing, class passing, of course, in Spain, the case of the Moors, right? Uh, right? The, the Jews I and mean, the Spanish Inquisition is all about passing. So um, our interest is less than in um, kind of the ethics of the individual pretending, which is the orientation of some theoreticians and much more in how these stories of passing are represented in fiction, in the press, in films, to tell us more about the debates that are going on at particular moments in history about this particular identity category. So um, that's one of the reasons why, I mean, I'm fascinated by whether or not Mario Elisa was transgendered. 
uh, as a feminist scholar, I think it's a really interesting question for this project. It's not the focus because what we're interested in is the fact that everybody jumped into this story. Everybody jumped into the story to, to figure out what it meant mm -hmm. that Elisa was able to really become Mario. And I would add um, sort of two elements. And one is we're interested in these representations because these representations are doing work, right? They, they are engaged in that moment's debate, right? And they're taking a particular stance on it. So the existence of these representations of pasting imagines that at this particular moment, that category is potentially in a level of transition. And as an example, in this particular case, it is not merely that some of the readership questioned the initial representation, but the fact that it exploded, as you said, like a celebrity crime case, means that prior to the event occurring, there was already a level of debate or discussion or concern about the status of the category. For had there not been, there would have been that public interest. Yeah, well, it sounds like a, a fascinating project that you both are uh, embarking on. And of course, that uh, explosive reaction in the press is what you focused on in your article for the bulletin. And uh, so we're going to take a short pause and then we'll talk more about that right here on the podcast. As you mentioned in the first segment, Sean, um, your article focuses on this explosive reaction um, to this case in the press, first at the local regional level and then at the national level. Um, so could you tell us a little more, Joyce, about what that reaction in the regional level was and um, how they responded to that reader reaction that Sean mentioned bringing in medical and legal experts to try and make sense of this case. Yeah, sure. In the Voce Galicia, which is the, the local paper that broke the case, um, it's interesting to see that within the first few days of the coverage, we have uh, two headlines. One is, what does science say? What do the doctors say? And another one is uh, what crime or crimes did they commit? So, you know, they, they invoke the, the two major institutional authorities that police the category of gender at that time to figure out, okay, what are we gonna do with this case? So um, the answer to the first question is absolutely fascinating. What do the scientists say? The, the response is, first of all, anonymous, very interesting. They, they get a renowned physician who they don't name to talk about his, I suppose, take on the case. And that person places the case pretty firmly in the frame of the developing science of sexology, which around this time is just starting to talk about things like sexual inversion. That's the term in Spanish that the, that the doctor uses. This would be a case of sexual inversion, of confusion about uh, gender identity. 
the point I think of the response is that it is pathological. They're focusing, of course, on, on Mario's self-presentation. But at the same time, in the same issue in which this question is addressed, they reprint an article that had been published a few months earlier in the popular press, whose title is Women Who Pass for Men. And that's a really interesting little historical review of cases of gender passing throughout history. So at the same time that the, that the doctor's saying, well, this is a case of gender pathology, the, the same newspaper establishes that, yeah, and it's nothing new at all. Um, in terms of the response from the law, very interesting. The, uh, the legal experts are sort of pulling their hair out, trying to figure out what is the crime, and there is nothing they can really point to. It's not um, a fraudulent marriage because Marcela knew exactly what was going on. Nobody was tricked. The most that they can say is that there was a fraud committed when Elisa presented herself as Mario. But even that is open to debate that interacts with the medical debate because then the status of, of Mario's uh, purported hermaphroditism is raised. So uh, I, I, the bottom line is there is a debate. It's nothing uh, that anybody can clarify really. And the debate really doesn't stop. How about that reaction at the national level? What kinds of papers covered this pace throughout Spain and how did they do that? Do you want to take that one, Sean? Uh, it was literally everybody. La Patria, El País. Um, it was pretty much covered in one way or another throughout the entirety of the country and it, even in the initial stages internationally. But because so many of these questions um, are ultimately unresolvable, because it's, it's just question after question that you begin to see, especially as the debate goes on, that a number of those national, uh, national level papers, um, you begin to see a bit of a contrast between what's covered in sort of what's purported to be the story and their editorials, because there becomes um, a, an evolving um, sense that, that this is inappropriate to cover. I'll tell you that the uh, El País wrote, and this is in translation on the 5th of June, 1901, quote, it pains us deeply to see that the serious press, which takes upon itself nothing less than the responsibility for guiding the public and for faithfully reproducing its opinions, should on a daily basis dedicate columns and columns full of ab abominable, nauseating details to this unimaginable extreme of degeneration and shameless immorality. So essentially the national press is ultimately uncomfortable with the sorts of questions that are being asked. Uh, and a number of them are framing it within the terms of here we are at this moment of required national regeneration, that is post war of 1898. And that, and that this, the existence of this debate um, is perceived as a, a further element of national generation. Not a, not, a, not a symbol of progressive advance, but in fact, one of those things that is tearing the country apart. So you can see that. And what is interesting is that the, the political stripe of the individual newspaper, liberal or conservative, 
are relatively indifferent on this question, in this question, so that a paper such as El País would be one criticizing this, would seem to suggest that it's interested in revolution, but not this particular kind of revolution. How about some of these papers that might have been considered less the, the respectable press, as uh, El Pais put it? Uh, in your article, you have uh, details about extensive co coverage in um, one such paper, El Successo Illustrado. So uh, you know, what kind of paper was this and what was its unique take on this past? Well, see, that's interesting that you asked. So the Successo Illustrado, uh, like uh, its predecessor, Los Sucesos, Revista Ilustrada de Actualidades, Siniestros, Crímenes y Causas Celebres. Uh, check that for a title, right? These are all, these are all, these are all newspapers modeled after uh, an immensely successful U.S. paper called the National Police Gazette. Now, the National Police Gazette has been, uh, is traditionally known for covering crime stories, particularly those involving some sort of love triangles, sensational women on man violence, and gruesome deaths. And the actual American newspaper was initially distributed to bars and barber shops, right? So it's a paper that is specifically directed to a particular kind of male readership, particularly an urban male readership that is laying out a very particular notion about gender relations. So that invariably there are illustrations of women on women or women on man violence that's uh, it, always cast through a very um, gendered frame, right? So the Suceso Ilustrado, um, if it's going to cover this case, it's going to cover it from within that context. And in fact, it dedicates an entire edition to this case. It is filled with photographs and it promises from the very beginning that this was information collected by the very editor of the paper itself with the specific intent to get to the actual truth of the issue. That is to say, it's not about debate, it's not about discussion, it is the actual facts. And it produces a story in which it tells us a story about disguise. It tells us, it, it recasts everything within the story as an assault upon good values and good morals and upon the Spanish state itself. And even contemplates at a later point, in fact, there's a deep interrogation of, of the priest wanting to know why he failed in this essential mission, but ultimately lands on their act is like the, the pagans of ancient times who you know, se burlan de la fe de nuestras creencias, right? So that it, it casts these women not as, as exploring uh, uh, categories at the moment, but rather as a direct assault upon, a direct assault upon the Spanish nation and the nation of gender, in which these men see themselves as the personified uh, defenders of it. The, the problem, especially for the Suceso Ilustrado with this particular case, is that the women have never really faced punishment. They escape into Portugal. Um, they spend a little bit of time in Portugal, but ultimately, I believe Portuguese royalty are actually somewhat involved in expressing concern about the condition of these women. The, the, the narrative that the Suceso Ilustrado requires is a punishment for these women in Spain. And it, and it actually has a, an utterly fictional moment at the end of the text that has a very masculinized uh, 
uh, Pueblo, the village that they lived in, basically on the edge of lynching the women. So, uh, which of course, as it is described, didn't really, didn't really happen, but that was the narrative required for this particular readership. Mm-hmm. And it also attempted to ascribe a punishment for others who would contemplate the same acts. All right, so we're going to have another pause, and then we're going to think more about what the significance was uh, of this particular case of passing and, and how it relates to some of your larger work. As we were speaking in the last segment about the reaction in the press, um, a particularly famous author from that period, Emilia Pardo Bazan, also stepped into the debate. So what did she make of this marriage? So this was the perfect thing for Pardo Bazan to talk about. At this point in in her life, Pardo Bazan is kind of at her peak. She's already produced um, several novels, hundreds of short stories. She is very widely respected as one of the prime intellectuals of the nation. And one of her main interests had to do with gender um, and gender equity. So she's extremely well-regarded. In fact, she's so well-regarded that she has a monthly column in one of the most high-status, glossy journals of Spain, which is called La Ilustración Artística. And she uses that column to talk about this case. So at the same time that her fellow intellectuals are condemning the coverage as being just a distraction from really important issues, Her point is, this is an important issue. Um, What's interesting, many things are interesting to us about her take on this, but first of all, she doesn't judge the case. She certainly does not condemn the couple. And in fact, she situates this particular act of passing as just one more within a long line of illustrious people who were born female, who then presented as men. So she compares um, Mario Elisa to the very well-known case of the 16th century soldier Catalina de Arauso, known as the Lieutenant Nun. Catalina de Arauso fought in the colonial wars as a man and was uh, awarded a lifelong pension for her, his services to the crown. Once it was revealed that Catalina was born Catalina and not any of the male names that that um, it also used in in the war. So at at this point in 1901, Catalina de Rauso is extremely well-known. There are all sorts of representations of this story and she's putting um, Mario Elisa right up next to Catalina de Rauso in terms of what uh, what was managed in, in the gender identity. But she also, Pardo Bazan also compares Mario Elisa to the famous French spy, the Chevalier Deung, the, the, uh, I don't know how to translate that to English, um, whose assigned birth gender was discovered. So the Chevalier was a spy 
And it was discovered at one point that the Chevalier was not a Chevalier, but was born female. At that point, the Chevalier was forced to live the rest of his life in what Pardabathan calls, um, and I'm quoting and translating, the most constricting prison there is, which is the prison of the skirt. Great quote. So yeah. Maria Luisa fascinates Pardabathan because she managed, because Maria Luisa managed to use the legal and ecclesiastical processes to legally lay claim to all the rights and privileges that are only granted to those who were born male. So in, in our reading of that essay, when Pardavathan says this, she totally captures the social significance of the past. And that is that it exposes how social rights and privileges are regulated by what identity category an individual is assigned. She totally nails it. And so Pardo Basan is actually addressing this idea of passing that uh, you discuss in your work as well. So what does it mean for you? How do you think this idea of passing allows us to understand this case better? Well, I think we, may, we might need to reframe the question because when we look at the individual case, it's ultimately a question about ontology. So I think a, a better issue is how does this case allow us to better understand passing? That is to say that it is through the lens of passing that we can understand some of the dynamics of what would lead a person to alter their self-presentation. And I think part of the Bassan absolutely nailed, nailed it, that dressing as a man, Mario had access to privileges, to rights, to modes of behavior that would otherwise be um, forbidden. And that that is what's driving that public debate. And that that public debate is existent at that time, but it is harder to see in the absence of a passing case because a passing case forces us to rehearse what are those limitations? What is it that defines a woman? What is it defining? Is it, is it solely, and which is why we're asking, is it a legal definition? Is it a biological definition? Is it a church definition? And by evoking Catalina de Arauzo, well, here's a, a, a case in the past in which all of those limitations were, for a time, even though she had been discovered to have been born a woman, it is ultimately the church and even the Pope that permits her to dress as a man and to draw a pension. So this is not only a present, uh, present here in the debate in 1901, but it's in fact an ongoing debate. So I think that's really what, looking for that case of passing and to see how it's discussed, that we can get a sense about the contours of that debate and the people that choose to participate it and the way that they participate kind of lets us see where they fit in that larger social matrix of that debate. And the case of the Suceso Lustrado shows the vehemence with which some people uh, attempt to close, to, to preclude the continuance of that sort of discussion or debate. So that ultimately, be it a, uh, be it a journalistic representation or a fictional one, they are all actions attempted to constrain social debate and potentially progress. As you mentioned, the, these are debates that I think still speak to us today. And I understand that the story of Maria Elisa and Marcella has actually gained prominence once again in recent years. So how is the story represented today? And 
Do you think there are any problems with the contemporary approach to it? Problems to the in the contemporary approach? Uh, I wouldn't go so far as to say that. I will say that um, our interest is in understanding 1901 and understanding the ways in which uh, Spain has dealt with issues of gender and questions of biological sex diachronically. So uh, the, the current focus on the case is almost always, I, I think always, with a focus on what Sean's called the ontology of the past. In other words, the particular individual gender identity of this particular person, right, who we call Mario Elisa. Typically, in current representations, that person is referred to as Elisa. The pass as a pass is elided, and the case is presented as Spain's first gay wedding. In other words, it's, it's, it's often presented as a case of two women who were in love, um, so in love that one of them was willing to disguise herself as a man so that they could legally get married. We don't think the documentation supports this interpretation, but for us, the important thing is that that's a representation of the case in 2000. 2020, 2021, 2019. And those representations show us a lot about current preoccupations, current perspectives on gender identity, current perspectives on biological sex that tell us very little about the moment in which the case actually happened. And the case is inherently interesting. I mean, we are, we remain interested in Catalina de Arauzo the uh, discovery of this event, a contemporary discovery of this event, uh, leads us to want to write about it, leads us to want to represent it, but it's almost always um, as a means to engage or to maintain the debate at the moment of the status of that category. Uh, it is difficult probably to represent it, uh, this the, represent it in the past in a way that's faithful to the 1901 in part because we have a, uh, because often those contemporary, these contemporary representations of that case begin with an understanding of 1901 Galicia that is in fact the opposite of what we find in our research, right? It, it imagines the, for example, these two as, as two um, brave uh, early warriors for a certain kind of gender representation against uh, uh, against uh, a backward or against an ignorant or resistant society. When in fact our research potentially demonstrates something, uh, something quite different. Yeah, so in fact, um, that was gonna be my last question for you because I think you've made quite clear on this podcast as well that you have been very nuanced in terms of treating this case um, from the evidence that we're able to gather from that time in 1901. So what are your conclusions about the true significance of this case of passing with Mario Elisa and Marcela? I would say at least its significance is, one, the real existence of a debate in 1901 about these gender categories and that we tend to live in these categories in ways that we imagine to be in, uh, sort of eternal, 
right? We, or that we are in the possession of a certain kind of truth. But as we explore and examine uh, passing diachronically, we can see that there's a constant process of renegotiation and that each representation is, is doing that kind of work. And then in fact, if you were to study, if you will, diachronically, the multiple representations of this particular past, you can see the contours of the evolution of, 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 of that debate. So I would say that on the one hand, it shows while gender was not a settled issue in 1901, and second, that passing is a very good lens in which to understand the way society negotiates some of these categories. And that I would suggest that we have, when you, when you capture that, then you can go back and look at representations of the past, representations of stories in the past and find passes that never occurred to you to be a pass in the first case. And in another, for example, as we look at early modern text, sets of categories um, that are in fact representations of passes, but because we don't take those categories to be valid, we're not invested and we can't follow the debate because there isn't a debate for us. I don't know if that makes any sense, but I think this is a powerful and useful lens. Absolutely, yeah, and, and that, that occurred to me as well. Um, I think I usually think of gender first with the term, of course, you mentioned the origins uh, with race in the US, but then you mentioned the, the conversos and the mariscos as well, which, which I never thought of as, as passive, but of course they are as well. Were you gonna add anything as well, uh, Joyce? Um, I think Sean's made the most important point. I just wanna add that um, when we just look at the, the documentation in the press um, and, and just read the comments that are being made right then, uh, for us, it, it reveals the strong tendency of, of what we call presentism, right, in all of us. That is, we assume that at the present moment, in terms of the things that are important to us, we are the most evolved that could possibly be, and that there has been a constant progression towards the present moment of enlightenment. <laughs> Looking at these documents shows us that no, no, not at all. Pardo Bazan's response to the case and her analysis of the case shows us that at, in 1901 in Spain, in rural Spain, people were thinking about those same issues and they were thinking in ways that are just as nuanced, or if not more so than we are now. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you both so much for coming on the program. Uh, I think this is a fascinating story. I appreciate you sharing it with people and uh, particularly the ways in which you analyzed it. Um, I think it gives us a whole new perspective on, on the way people saw gender um, 120 years ago. So thank you. Thank, thank you. you it's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias. For additional information about our guests and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify, and to follow us on Facebook or Twitter so that you can be notified of new episodes.